This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show. My name is Thomas Caldwell and I'm joined in the cave by Alexandra Helen Nicholas and Josh Nelson. Cerise Howard will be away for the next few weeks, but you've got the three of us tonight. Josh, how was yesterday? A little disappointing. I think you're, you're referring to the Community Cup. I am referring to the Community Cup, or just whatever you got up to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how are you, Josh? <laughs> I'm a little fragile. We'll see how things pan out over the next hour. Uh, look, you know, the, the Cup is always a wonderful event, um, win, lose or draw, and I've experienced all, all three of those now in my four years uh, in the Cup. But, yeah, sure, look, the megahertz were, I'll say we were robbed just because it'll, it'll piss <laughs> Evo off and uh, it'll give us some fury for... For whoever plays next year, but yeah, a wonderful event, and the fact that you know surrounding the event was the tribute to uh, Bowie, Prince, and Lemmy was was pretty nice, actually. And we're going to talk some films on this little old show of ours. We're going to be covering Everybody Wants Some, uh, a U.S. college comedy set in 1980 by Boyhood director Richard Linklater. We're also going to be looking at Mustang, the much acclaimed film from Turkey about five high spirited about five high spirited sisters living in an environment. Of oppression where they are prevented from leaving their house. But let's kick off with Independence Day Resurgence. This is the new film by Roland Emmerich, who is best known for his disaster porn films such as 2012, The Day After Tomorrow, and the original Independence Day way back in 1996. So 20 years on from the alien invasion in the first film, the world has remained united by the experience and is now extremely technologically advanced, having had access to all the alien equipment left behind. Some characters, such as scientist and computer expert David Levison, played by Jeff Goldblum, are involved in building the Earth's defences for the inevitable second attack. We all love Jeff Goldblum. Other characters, such as former President Thomas J. Whitmore, played by Bill Pullman, and a beard, are still traumatised. Uh, but most of the focus is on a new generation of characters who have to, to contend with the new invasion. I'm sorry if that's a spoiler, but the aliens come back. The original Independence Day was a mashup of 1990s X-Files-style conspiracy theories and 1950s science fiction films, while this one feels more indebted to films such as Aliens, District 9, Star Wars, Cloverfield and Starship Troopers. What do we think? Is it as fun the second time around? I'm assuming we all quite enjoyed the first one. I, um, I saw the first one at a very poignant time in my life. I think it just, it, to me, it's like the ultimate 90s insane blockbuster i actually rewatched it again just before revisiting this one and it's it's insane and, and i think that that the same word would apply to, to resurgence I, i'm very comfortable saying that this is uh this is an irrational film that i would argue is impenetrable by rational film criticism i just don't know whether we can use the palette of discourse that we might usually use as cinema for a film that is this batshit insane I, I had the time of my life. I, all I want from cinema, and I didn't know until I saw it, was Charlotte Gainsbourg in space. That's all I want is Charlotte Gainsbourg was in space. Was that casting kept secret? Because I, I had it was no idea she was in this. It's that like, was oh, a very random. Charlotte Gainsbourg yeah. in space. It's like, I didn't know that I wanted that. I didn't know how empty my Charlotte Gainsbourg cup in space was until I'm just babbling now. I'm so excited. Jeff Goldblum is just always a delight. The thinking person's 
Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> He's nice. just extraordinary. I am obsessed. I'm starting to babble now, but I have a complete obsession <laughs> with, and I, I made a joke about this on Twitter the other day before I saw Resurgence. That in a way, because Robert Loggia and Bill Pullman, of course, were both in the first Independence Day, seven months later, Lost Highway was released. Mm. And that becomes a very interesting double bill if you think of them as a, as, as, as a sequel. And that to me only gets stronger. The only explanation you really have for Bill Pullman's character in Independence Day Resurgence is if you work his character trajectory from Lost Highway <laughs> into it. Like I said, this is irrational. There's no logic going on here. There is... It, it was insane. It was, I, I, I just can't find enough words to repeat how mad this, this film is. This film would have been interesting if it had been directed by David Lynch. I remember 1996 stands out for me as the year that Lost Highway and Independence Day came out because I remember I was so excited by Lost Highway and I, and I thought everyone had the same amount of hype for it that I had <laughs> as Independence Day was receiving. But um, Independence Day came out in 96, about seven months, I think. So I think Lost Highway originally came out in 90, at the start of 97. So there's about six or seven months between them. Oh, I remember. I remember seeing them both in the same year and being aware of They may have been released. The... They may have been released here quite closely together. Okay, but yeah. I know that the official release date for Lost Highway is actually technically '97. Okay, but I remember the but hype, they, and they, I remember, I remember being, being very excited. I remember for watching both. them very closely yeah. together too, because I was yeah. studying spectacle cinema as well at the time, yeah. and the way the event of seeing a film spills beyond just seeing the actual film. And yeah, I adored the original Independence Day, and it's a film I've revisited on a fairly regular basis, and always loved it. I, I think it's centrist politics, a fascinating. Fascinating. It's, it's it's got a slightly ever so right of centre kind of political bent, which is actually quite comforting and, and benign, and it's sort of really really fun. Yeah, the thing that strikes me on rewatches of Independence Day because I rewatch it regularly with my partner as well. And I think it's a it's a joy, and I don't see it as a it's so bad it's good type of film. I, I think no. you know, I think, no, I I think it's either. actually a genuinely really well made blockbuster. Yeah. Yes, it's kind of dumb. You know, the whole virus that just upload the virus from a Mac system to you know the, to bring down the mothership is kind of ludicrous. But it's done in, in a fun way. But the thing that strikes me on rewatches, which is is different to, I guess, a lot of contemporary cinema is the pacing. The pacing of the original film is wonderful. It has that wonderful build. It builds the characters. It, it, it initiates and anchors the characters at the beginning. And then slowly we have the question of, you know... And, I mean, the audience knows that the aliens have um, dastardly intentions, but the characters don't quite know to, in, in the beginning. And this is what I think Emmerich misses out on or, you know, in, it, rather than trying to just give us the same Independence Day again... And, and hit the blockbuster sort of the the machinations and the big action set pieces from the beginning is you lose that sense of the wonderful pacing and the, and the dramatic build and you also have characters in the sequel who emerge suddenly about halfway through the narrative or even later and it feels like a very truncated film this feels like a film that and I've heard whispers that, <clears throat> this, uh, that there was an earlier version of this film that was maybe half an hour even longer yeah. and it definitely feels like it it feels like a truncated film and I, in, in some ways I think that's a shame because it didn't feel like a two hour film it didn't feel like a long film I felt like this film wouldn't have lost much in terms of the joy factor at least by expanding some of the, the groundwork at the beginning and particularly in that first act I completely agree and I think what really suffers in this new film is the whole new generation, the whole new set of characters are really bland and boring there, there's and nothing why? except for one woman I think no there, there, oh, there, no, there's, there's the an African American well. character think, and there's a Chinese character compared to the first <laughs> film though when, when the central protagonists were a black couple um the, the romance in that first film is between Will Smith and a stripper, 
if I remember correctly. Yes, who's now a doctor in this new film? <laughs> Very briefly, and, yeah. and Mrs. Cosby, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, was it Felicia Rashad? Is that her name? I think it was. Oh really? I've yeah. no idea. I'm not even going to pretend. I don't, think, I don't think, so. <laughs> I think it's the same woman from she she popped up in um, Creed. Creed. That's yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think yeah, it's Vivica it just, Fox, isn't it? Vivica A. Fox. Oh, was that her doing a cameo? I think that was, it was her. Was the same actress? I think it was. That's yeah. kind of lovely. I, she just had the shape of Mrs. Oh, Cosby's she was, hair. She had. She was rocking the Rashad <laughs> look. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, look, this was just too overstuffed. There was too much. I mean, one of the one of the joys I think of the first film is its simplicity. And this film lacks the simplicity in that it's well, so caught up Well, even the first film in. has quite a few na- competing narratives that nicely intertwine. Yeah. Like, I, I think the first film's really beautifully structured. Yeah, I like the build-up. Sorry, I cut you off. No, but no, I think I, actually the first film is a better and cleverer film than people dismiss it as. I think Emmerich is a really interesting guy and there's like, actually yes. something... I, I, I have a massive bugbear with the kind of... Especially online, the kind of snort eye roll, oh, my God, Emmerich, isn't he a dick? Because he makes these kind of you know, idiotic disaster movies. It's like, re- read up on the guy. I mean, he's he's out. Credit for that in Hollywood. You know, there's a start. Um, one of the most extraordinary moments in this film is so brief and fleeting, and I don't think it's a spoiler, is a very, very, very small reveal of a gay relationship in the film from characters that we see in the first film. It's a flash of hands being held. And oh, yes, I know what you're talking quick, about. Yeah, that a was a really beautiful moment. domestic conversation where it's a realisation, and it's like this... This is natural. Mm. This is naturalised in this film. It's not like a. there's no punchline to it. There's no, oh, my God, they're gay. It's just very naturalised. And it's just an exquisite little moment in this madness, <laughs> this kind of soup of chaos that surrounds this little moment. He- it's like I, I just, ref- you know, I would love to see things like that in a little, you know, in a few more blockbusters. And I like Emmerich for bringing in his own, you know, I mean, he's quite, he does a lot of stuff. He's very active in... Um, he's a you know kind of queer activist. He does a lot of work on um, putting money into restoring and finding uh, gay and what's historically referred to as gay and lesbian film. He's an interesting guy, you yeah. know, and I think he brings that to his mad, insane, irrational film. That, well, that's strange though, because that's such a subtle moment, such a wonderfully I think handled it's the only moment. Subtle moment in the whole film. I mean, that's the strange thing, isn't it? I mean, because the romantic elements, the hetero romance in this film is so kind of overcooked, and a lot of the dialogue feels like it's straight out of Young and the Restless type stuff, and it really doesn't kind of gel. I can't even remember it. I'm well, so drawn well, blank. Yeah, this is yeah, the thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that the I film. I am now. You mention it, but yeah, the film works. I mean, I've, we saw it a week ago. And the film, I think, works in the moment. I, I was in the mood for something big, dumb, and fun, and it, it you know, this it hit, it nailed, it hit that mark for me. It's exactly, it. it's big, dumb, and fun. Yeah, yeah, you know, Jeff Goldblum is wonderful. Beard Pullman is also <laughs> wonderful. Charlotte Gainsbourg in space. Charlotte Gainsbourg, you know, she was wasted though, as in she wasn't used. <laughs> she, she wasn't used as well as she could have been. She was off. She's her a face. girl. <laughs> it's it's weird seeing Charlotte Gainsbourg in in a non Lars von Trier film, and I, I was almost I was hoping, waiting for like, her to kind of go somebody yeah, Antichrist style. Oh, Let's have some sadomasochistic Goldblum <laughs> alien sex orgy. Let's get really down and dirty. Lars von Trier, if you're listening, because I know he's a regular listener, that, that's your next film. Let's go back to sci-fi. I, um, yeah, look, I, I really enjoyed this as well, but it, it just there were moments of magic, but the whole film didn't have a sustained feel of magic for me, where the first film really weaves a beautiful spell, and it's to do with the, the beautiful build-up and, and the pace and this whole really wonderful ensemble of characters. And I really love the way Emmerich works with... 
ideas that are in contemporary culture to build old-fashioned disaster films and B-movies out of. I mean, his I films... I love disaster films. ...are proudly B, yeah. yeah. I mean, 2012 tapped into all the paranoia about, what is it, the, the Mayan calendar yeah. and... Um, Day After Tomorrow is the one of the really great environmental sort of disaster yeah, films. Yeah, sort of early, uh, early panic about what was going to happen there. It's got a racial relationship in that it does, film too. Yeah. I think I've got a soft called... spot for Anonymous, which is his film all about the Shakespeare, con- the Shakespeare conspiracy. Oh, I haven't <laughs> yeah. seen that. Yeah, it's a non-disaster film. It's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous and <laughs> absurd and that's, stupid, but it's really fun. I love that really that's a fun. genre. We should just talk about film from this point onward as disaster films and, and non-disaster films. films. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. But, uh, you know, th- uh, th- this new one, it does feel like a whole big chunk got cut out at some point yeah. that didn't explain why we were being introduced to a whole lot of children characters halfway through. But, yeah, to its credit, I mean, for, for somebody who has perfected the disaster porn look, he does some new things in this film we haven't seen before. So when the aliens first attack, the way they devastate the Earth is different to what we've seen before, and it's just this kind of delightfully surreal, beautiful, avant-garde new way of depicting mass carnage that I, I got a little bit choked yeah. up over. I, yeah, <laughs> I was a big fan of the fact that he didn't just repeat the same narrative. He didn't just rehash. Like, it wasn't yep. just the, the, you know, it wasn't just the first one rehashed. And even within the first sort of half an hour, 40 minutes, I was conscious of comparing this film in my mind to The Force Awakens. And I think Independence Day Resurgence is the stronger film for me. I know that's a, certainly We're a controversial, get called, Josh. St- controversial statement. <laughs> Facebook's going to At least, at least in that first act. And I think yeah. he deserves yeah. credit for not just trying to rehash um, the you know his his earlier incarnation in the same way that I think JJ Abrams fell back on and took a far safer path yeah, with that especially sequel. at the end I mean I actually found a lot of the stuff at the very end of this film really exciting too that they went quite big with an idea which we hadn't seen before I think I think it's a really good comparison to make I think where Star Wars may win is I'm I'm keen to see the characters introduced in Star Wars do more yeah where I kind of wish the characters in Independence Day get killed off at the start of the new film. One of the things I find super I interesting, <laughs> just about rewatching the first Independence Day and then watching this one 20 years later, and they talk about it a lot in the film. You know, in 1996, this happened. 20 years ago, this happened. Revisiting that first film, the the spectre of 9-11 is just extraordinary. I mean, I'm very hesitant to get into that very obvious symptomatic political stuff. Yeah. I know When I was watching Resurgent, it's like this film is going to spawn a million very, very mediocre undergraduate honours theses on monstrous feminine power and I'm already bored halfway through the sentence. Like, I think that it's too easy in a way to take those kind of avenues with this with this film. But watching that first film, you know, these kind of this mass fantasy of, of destruction, you know, icons, you know, uh, public monuments being destroyed and that kind of imagery is very, very interesting to watch as a fantasy they always before 9-11. always landmarks, as yeah, and then points out. Watching so this, light, so watching it? kind of Independence Day done... Uh, again after 9-11 and I don't think that it's you know it's not it's not the Steven Spielberg war of the world it's not concerned with that it's just a very different world I watched that on the the day after the Brexit news broke so all of this talk in this film about you know well the world's been living in harmony and it brought the world together it was devastating I mean it was just it was really emotional kind of trying to separate the world that we live in from the kind of fantasy that this world has constructed. And what Brexit has done is it's really really divided between right and left who are both saying the other side are full of idiots and the public don't know what they are doing. And, you know, there's been a lot of interesting talk lately about how some of our response to this has almost been a little bit losing faith in democracy. Where Jeff Independence Sparrow, Day, Jeff Sparrow wrote Jeff an Sparrow extraordinary article on that in Overland, which yeah. definitely needs to be called out, that, yep. that once you start calling the masses idiots, you're automatically 
a reaction. It's, it's anti-democratic. Yeah. And, and yeah. Independence Day is one of the great films of social consensus. It's, yeah. it's a pure centrist film. Yeah. Um, because that gets bums on seats. You know. well, it, it, and Emirates. It, not, funnily you know, enough, Emirates I don't think you see that many films like this, yeah, which is so dedicated to that very central idea of all of us come together. The military, the government and scientists all work together in harmony. It's quite a rare thing for the blockbuster. Normally you've got one side being demonised over the other. It's been like that since the 50s. The one thing that this film does differently, and again, it feels truncated and maybe it's there to give scope to a potential franchise, is, you know, in the first one we get the kind of glimpses of Australia and, you know, the Poms and the French and so on. Oh, now the US have saved it. We can tell the rest of the world how to do their job. There's a wonderful section here introducing the Gainsbourg character where we, we get the sense that Africa has been dealing with this issue in a very different way, in a more prolonged um, sort of conflict. And I thought, oh, that's, that, that's a film in itself. That would be a really interesting take on how a different continent has been dealing with the quote-unquote alien issue. And that, it, that, and that it, I mean, I, I think there were interesting things going on with the representations of the African warlord that were a bit strange for me. But mm. I like the idea that other countries have their own stories. Yep which is an interesting thing to do in a film called Independence Day. Independence Day Resurgence is the film that we've spoken about for about 20 minutes. I don't think we expected to get so much conversation <laughs> I think we've spoken about this. it more than perhaps a lot of the people involved. Yeah. <laughs> I must admit, I love big mainstream films. Big, dumb and that, fun. Yeah, but, but, but that provoke this kind of discussion about our, our world today. And I think that's what a lot of these... That, that, that is the, the, the value of a lot of some of these big blockbuster films, while they should be discussed at this length rather than being easily too easily dismissed. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Everybody Wants Some, the new film by Richard Linklater, set in and around a house for college baseball players in Texas in 1980 and starring mostly unknown actors. Its loose narrative is about the arrival of freshman pitcher Jake and his interactions with his new teammates during the days leading up to the beginning of classes and responsibilities. It's been described by Linklater as a spiritual sequel to his 1973 set high school film Dazed and Confused and also as a sequel of sorts to his last film Boyhood since that film ended with the protagonist going to college and this film is about the first few days of a young man at college. There's lots of drinking, competing, partying, talking about girls and attempting and often succeeding in having sex. Uh, one notable scene, which actually has the song we just heard playing in it, includes a character overpacking a bong. So the question I ask is, did we pack a bong for everybody wants some? I'm trying to embrace the, the lexicon that is... The alexicon. The alexicon oh, that's on the nice. show. That's, a, that's an extraordinary introduction to a film. The, the bong pack, that was... I swear, I'm going to get these T-shirts. Do you like how I did that? I I had to write it down (laughs) so I didn't get it wrong, but yes. (laughs) I I feel that I do not have a huge amount to bring to the table on this film because I understood that this was a spiritual sequel. This is the the phrase that's being bandied around. I think Linklater himself has very much pushed it that way. I haven't seen Dazed and Confused. Neither have I. Oh, really? Because I I felt... I thought I was going to be the only one. Well, Well, I'll just jump in and say I saw Dazed and Confused when it first came out on VHS, that's how old I am, and had completely forgotten it. And I really watched it last night you don't need to have seen Days and Confused oh, yeah, to appreciate I felt, this so film I, I, saw, I saw this with somebody who didn't know that it was Linklater and yep. five minutes into it they said this is a sequel to Days and Confused and they were joking and I said it's Linklater and they were like 
I was kidding. Yeah, Days and Confused is set in high school over mm-hmm. 12 hours, and it's, non, it, it's a bit like American Graffiti. It's American Graffiti for 1976. So this film is, again, trying to have an ensemble of characters a little bit older now, you know, the last few days before Responsibility kicks in, where Days and Confused is about the final day of school. That's really interesting because I feel that um, I, I'm... I don't detest Linklater. I think he's made some great films, but I haven't drunk the Kool-Aid. I'm not like a hardcore... You know those hardcore Linklater people? I'm not one of them. I don't think anybody in this studio is. Is that yeah. right, Josh? Yeah. yeah. No, I, 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 I like and myself. respect him, but I'm not on the bandwagon. I get why this film is getting such the buzz that it is. I thought it was very warm and funny, um, but I just didn't have an angle into it. Um, I love the music. Um, I think the highlight of this film, I thought some of the characters were really, yeah, like, really warm and, and joyful. And I love that, you know, like, I mean, I grew up on the kind of $7 for seven videos for seven days, you know, like Animal House and stuff like that. So that's my background with this stuff. Um, there's an extraordinary performance by a young woman called Zoe Deutsch, I think her name is, who's the main love interest. And yeah, she, Beverly. She has um, quite astounding... Uh, Heritage, heritage for the for yeah, the for the, for the teen film. So her mother is Leah Thompson, who's quite a, a remarkable actor in her own right. But I think her big film was Some Kind of Wonderful. Yep, she's the hot foxy redhead in Some Kind of Wonderful. And her father is, of course, Howard Deutsch, who's the director of Pretty in Pink. So she's like, oh right, she's like teen yeah. film. That sounds girl. very deliberate casting. Yeah, and she's beautiful. Like she she just has that same kind of presence that her mother has in she all those really, wonderful 80s really films. She really looks like Leah Thompson. She really does. Yeah, it makes so much sense. I so mean, she really stood out for me yep. and I really enjoyed her presence but I can't, I mean there were funny bits in it I can't really critique this film and I understand why it's getting such huge praise but I just personally just found it quite impenetrable. Yeah, I had a very similar reaction actually and I think on the one hand I admire the fact and it's kind of a unique aspect in a broader sense that you're watching a film with relative... I don't want to say unknown because I'm sure someone knows them, but lesser known. Their actors. mums know them. Yeah, look, <laughs> and some of the the headliners have done, like some of them have been on TV, like shows like Glee. Like the lead actor was on Glee and the Glee Project, uh, apparently. Um, very square jawed lead actor. Yeah, I mean, a very handsome <laughs> yeah. chap. Who was yeah. the guy with the moustache? He was amazing. He was. He I had mean, an air well, of. Oh, the guy with the moustache. Most, <laughs> most three quarters of the cast. You know who I mean? Though, yeah, like yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. kind of the blonde guy. With the moustache? <laughs> no, the other okay, guy. The, the, that's no, half no, the, the cast. No, no. <laughs> I know the one you mean. The the batter. Yeah, he had a, he had an air of ogre from Revenge of the Nerds that quite appealed to me. But he looks like Jonathan Skeech. Is that how you say his name? Skeechy? Skeech? From back from the 90s? Don't look at me about how to pronounce names. Generation. <laughs> um, yeah, look, so it's interesting that it doesn't... It's not a film that relies on star power. And it's you know, it was made with a really small budget in, in Hollywood terms. I mean, this is a film I think was made for $10 million or or even slightly less. And it has a narrative which is not driven in a particularly dramatic fashion. It's very, as you mentioned, Thomas, it's a very loose-styled narrative. It's just a kind of three days before college. It's really the only framing narrative framing device. And it's like, okay, drinks, drugs, parties, and almost in a way that's a pastiche of all of those films. You mentioned Animal House, Stripes. There's a mud-wrestling mm-hmm. scene at a party which looks like it's almost a shot-for-shot sequence where, you know, with John Candy, when they get out of army training camp and John Candy gets in the in the ring with the, the two women, you know, uh, but I'm not sure if there's a sense of, of homage or it's a sense of parody. It doesn't kind of go to the extremes of camp. It's in this strange middle ground where it's, it could veer into either territory, 
but it never seems to do it. It finds this sort of strange middle ground. So I, I found it unique in some ways, but I, I found it, I really struggled to get into it in, in that way. But in, in a way that was different to say something like um, Wet Hot American Summer, the TV show based on the, on the film, which I watched earlier this year, which was that sort of striking a balance between slightly camp, but homage, but with characters that were genuine as well. Was, that, that was a show that I think put people off because... It was trying to do different things. It wasn't just a straight-out camp parody, play it for laughs. And I really appreciated that about Wet Hot American Summer. I think I appreciated those elements in this as well. I, I really, really enjoyed this. Although I've got to say, after having re-watched Days and Confused last night, uh, it's no Days and Confused. And I think that's still Linklater's best film. I was actually really really glad I revisited that last night because it's it's a really glorious film that just captures the mood and the environment and the, and, and the spirit of the times so beautifully. Where I think this one suffers a little bit from being set over a, a number of days. You don't have that fixed period of time which is often where these films the magic really comes alive but it's just a great hangout film and i really enjoyed getting the perspective of a group of guys who normally aren't the sympathetic characters in these college films because they're all jocks they're all they're all baseball stars but they're all essentially likable guys even though they're all very much capable of dickish behavior which the film does show us um it, there is a homage element in there for sure. I think this is also linked later having a nostalgic look back at his own college life. I mean, he was a bit of a jock himself. I think it's almost trying to be the respectable college film. It's sort of trying to show us what it may have actually been like. I mean, obviously Animal House is over the top. It's a lot of fun that captures a spirit, but it's over the top. I think this is an attempt to say this is closer to actually what may have gone on at these kind of things. The only big drawback, and it's something that Linklater has... He didn't do in the very beginning, but he has increasingly done over his career, which is he has his characters over-explain the thematics of the film you're watching in a way that's really irritating. And it happens twice in this. There's this beautiful idea about the guys constantly competing with each other. They turn everything into a petty competition. And I was really looking forward to talking about that dynamic until the characters actually have a scene in the film where they say, hey, have you noticed that everything we do turns into a competition? What does that say about us? There's also this great thing about every night they go to a different kind of scene or subculture. So they go to a disco, they go to a country night, they go to a punk concert, which is great. And, yeah, and that's it, one of my favourite And again, it's really forming fun. all these different identities and it's capturing the spirit of the 80s. Uh, hip-hop, it starts off with them listening to a very early hip-hop song. It, it, I, I love that sequence. I thought that was great. It's good fun, isn't it? But this idea in the 80s, there were all these different subcultures emerging and these guys were all having a taste of them and being very open-minded. I love that. Until there was a scene where they sat down and they said, isn't it interesting that we're visiting all these different subcultures? And I, I don't know where Linklater's tendency to do this came in, but it, it's disappointing. The music, I think, can't be underestimated. And I think um, I, my favourite thing about this film is the two exclamation marks in the title, <laughs> which doesn't come from the original Van Halen song. Um, I, I lost it for some reason when I realised that it was spelt with two exclamation marks. It's like, that's how you make a film. That's how I've even written it I in my notes. It's, yeah, it's you great. Know. <laughs> I have to say, though, as far as films go that include Van Halen's Everybody Wants Some, this is a second for me compared to Better Off Dead, the John Cusack film with the animated hamburger and the flying V. <laughs> guitar yeah i've seen that film yeah and, and that's that's the same song that's everybody wants some i was i was disappointed that everybody wants some wasn't quite as central as the title of this film made made me think devo were good there was a bit of devo action the soundtrack's great bit of the neck Oh, there's Gary Newman in there. There's cool. the stiff little fingers are in there. I was thinking, like, um, the most, yeah. the most he, of the budget of this film must have just gone uh, on music rights. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and that's that's very Linklater. I mean, he uses music. I mean, Boyhood was, you know, was punctuated. He uses music to punctuate the narrative. And yep. 
particularly popular music in, in that way. I, I wasn't as sold on Boyhood as a lot of people were. I thought no, I mean, for I a three-hour film... I don't think I was either. I could, like the concept it, yeah, of it. Yeah, I, I think um, Patricia Arquette was extraordinary in that film. Yes, I, agreed. I think she was the highlight for me. It didn't, I don't think it needed to be three and a bit hours or whatever it was. I thought the last scene at the college was pretty damn awful, actually, I think, in terms of ways to end that film. should have finished with him leaving the uh, familial home and saying goodbye to his mother. Um, oh, spoiler. <laughs> but it's not how it ends. Oh, Jesus. Oh, dear, what have I done? But but that said, I, I think that he has strength in, in moments, and I think that's that's on show in Boyhood, it's on show in some of his other films, and it's certainly on show this here. This feels like vignettes, like yeah. quite a, quite, and that's the strength of it. I mean, there's a, an Alice in Wonderland party sequence that kind of bugged me for reasons that I think are exactly why it works, in that the mise-en-scene was completely off. But that's precisely what those kind of uni parties are like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it, kind it, of overcooked that, and wrong. That was the theatre students, and, yeah, yeah. And it was kind of perfect. Like and I was, kind of love the fact that you're assuming that the baseball guy is going to be douchebags at that yeah, party, and, yeah. and they're not. The, actually, drama, the drama kids are the kind of... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. Same I, with the punks. You're assuming there's going to be... A, it's just everyone's kind of lovely to each other in a way that feels sincere. Yep. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Mustang is the debut feature film by Turkish-French filmmaker Denise Gemzi Agruvan. Gamzee Agruvan. Thanks. Mm. Since premiering in the director's fortnight section at last year's Cannes Film Festival, it has since screened internationally to great acclaim, including at various festivals in Australia, and it's picked up multiple awards and nominations, including Academy Awards and Golden Globe nominations. The film is about five sisters living with their uncle and grandmother in a secluded and very conservative Turkish village. Inspired by real stories, including some of the filmmaker's own experiences, Mustang is about the removal of freedoms from the sisters after they are accused of behaving indecently with male classmates. Many critics have been quick to compare Mustang to Sofia Coppola's The Virgin's Suicides, while the director claims to have taken inspiration from classical mythology, Chekhov's play Three Sisters and Don Siegel's film Escape from Alcatraz. I've also read one critic who compared Mustang to slasher films as one by one the girls get married off. Having finally been released theatrically in Australia, Alex, you and I have gone to see this. Do you think it lives up to the hype? I'm a very, very lucky film cricket in that in the last two weeks I've seen two of my favourite... So critical cricket. Cricket. That's what my, <laughs> that's what my child tells me oh, that okay. my job is. I'm a film cricket. <laughs> I love so, that. Yeah, I'm going to have that on a business card. I'm a film cricket. Um... I have seen two of my favourite films of the year in the last two weeks and both of them have been directed by women, coincidentally. This film, I I think the hype doesn't do it justice. I was just blown away by this movie. It's one of those strange sensations you get when you watch a film from a culture that's very much not your own and you have a sense of deja vu that, that is tied to experiences that are thoroughly not your own. I can't describe it. I know that's an abstract way to put it. There was a feeling watching this film. I'm one of uh, a family of many, many girls. Um, So the notion of sisterhood, there's just um, so much tactile imagery in this film of lying in the sun with just limbs entwined with your sisters, just these sense memories, these, these incredible, incredibly powerful film, incredibly beautiful film, incredibly sad film. Um... And very, I mean, the director is uh, French. So this is a, an international co-production. She's French-Turkish, um, based on a lot of her memories of, you know, like you said, Thomas, you know, things that happened, things that she remembers from 
from Turkey. Yeah, well, the incident that inspires um, the events in this yeah, film the, did the, happen the, the to start, her. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I find, compa- I mean, I, I, and I'm not dissing the virgin suicides at all, but I think that's an extremely lazy point of comparison in that it's for Western critics to say, okay, well, let's just assume that this is a version of, I mean, to me, this is such a uniquely Turkish story. Um, and I think to undermine that is hugely disrespectful to the specifics of the culture that it's talking about. I was just going to say, and I haven't seen it, I'm really looking forward to seeing this film, but the trailer seems to be trading off its similarity. The trailer seems to have been cut in terms of the music and the style and the shots that have been selected in the trailer with a deliberate attempt to echo Coppola's approach to virgin suicides because that's what my assumption was having not seen the film but coming into it through the, through that the trailer. Could be, that could be a marketing thing. I think it must trailers be. Yeah. Are, trailers having seen trailers the trailer, I think you're right. Trailers yeah. are cut very much by marketing people mm-hmm. and advertising people, not not the directors of Definitely. films themselves. Why we should so, never judge films and trailers. Yeah, because, I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, you talk to people that cut trailers for a living. It's one of the most interesting conversations mm. I've ever had because it's a lovely man, very good at his job, zero interest in films. Well, it's about getting people it's into the cinema. It's yeah. not yep. about representing the film. Yeah. Um, I think the comparisons the version of suicide is utterly superficial and it's yeah, been so very disappointing hearing the number lazy. of people it's really really lazy I, I really feel quite strongly about that. five sisters that's yep. that's it um and i think listening I've, I've actually this is film has inspired me to do a bit more reading and reading interviews with her and all the, all the comparisons that she makes are, are much more apt uh, there, she's there, there an is, extraordinary woman this is her feature debut what a woman she's very <laughs> educated and very cinematically literate mm-hmm. like it is a different culture, but she understands core filmic language, so she has made a film with universal appeal. Yeah. And I'm not going to argue with you on this one. This is a, an astonishing film that I um, that, that, that sort of transported me to, you know, a, a very different place and had a very powerful grip on me. And and I think you know, the first hour or so of this film, there is a sense of danger, but that's over overridden by the joy of these girls who just have this amazing bond and defiance. And, and there's a sequence that reminded me of Jafar Panani. Uh, offside. Yes, I was actually going to bring that up. I yeah. think this is worth mentioning because I thought this was one of the most extraordinary things in this film and I don't think it's a spoiler because it sort of happens in the first part of the film and it's just a kind of one of the parts of the story um, that gets the girls to where they end up where there's um, the youngest girl the, the she's called the protagonist in most of the press materials surrounding this film the youngest sister called Lale who's played by an extraordinary young woman I think it's worth saying that the five girls in this film all shared the um, emerging actor award yeah, well, they were the Lumiere, good, aren't the they? Lumiere yeah. awards they, they all, all five of them got it I mean all five of these girls put in incredible performances but the younger sister who's the central who's our central point of comparison. It's very much the story's told from her point of view. Um, she's not a protagonist. She's an, an old-fashioned hero. Like, she's an incredible character. Um, I, I, I think she's just one of the best characters I've, I've seen on film this year. She's just very... There's so much depth and passion and anger and love and complexity to this young woman. And last week I was talking about the fits and my fascination with stories about girlhoods. Her older sisters are adolescents and the story is very much about their experiences about going into womanhood and she's watching that as the youngest. Mm. So the football thing, she's really she really likes football. She wants to go to a football match. Um, the girls ha- are having their behaviour restricted uh, because of a viewed... Um, Indiscretion, yeah, yeah. What it was assumed to be um, misbeha- misbehaviour, so they've been kind of taken back to this more traditional uh, mode of, of parenting, I guess, uh, that's much more strict. Um, she desperately wants to go to this football match and it, it is announced that because there's been riots at a football game, um, they're going to have a, a match 
that is only women allowed at the at the football match. So no men are allowed. It's women only. And so the, the the five girls kind of rally about this idea about having this moment of freedom. And all I could think is like that you couldn't do that in an Australian film. Like, could you imagine? You know, this is like the Australian version of like um, Aristophanes' Liza Strata. Like, instead of women de- being, you know, denying men sex, it's like women denying men the right to go to the football. I saw Mustang just when all the Eddie Maguire shit was happening, and I was just laughing. It's like this is, you know, this is a film about this very strict conservative Turkish background yet if that happened you couldn't do that in an australian film there would be riots in the street if there was a film about men being banned from going to the football one of the things i found really interesting about this film is the depiction of their grandmother who is very much lived with this extreme patriarchy her entire life and certainly holds these hysterical moral values and so she's part of restricting the girls their freedom but she also has enormous sympathy and protectiveness towards them. So she's this torn between trying to punish them and restrict them and also trying to protect them from, from their uncle. And, and that's actually tied up in this scene where they go to the soccer game in a very funny way, the extreme length she goes to. to right, it's like the, the punk rock moment, protect the, the girls. film in a way, yeah, um, yeah. that comes from the grandmother. It's just a remarkable And film. there was something quite heartbreaking about her character too, to know that she had lived with this her entire life and there was no way out for her. That, that I, I mean, that runs through this, that it's, mm. it's generational it's in the system mm. um, and this idea of escape and I think that's where the I mean I, I would use the slasher comparison very loosely but I think that this idea of girls trying to escape is is very essential to what's going on yeah well they're in a fixed in location yep. and like I said they're yep. getting married off and yep. so their numbers are dwindling and, a, and then there were none model um, yeah. the, the I mean the grandmother I think is an extraordinary extraordinary character one of the things i find really interesting in this film is how the women how the young girls you know they they, they, they're not allowed to go to school anymore the idea that educational uh, education stops them from being marriable you know that they don't want them to be progressive modern educated women so they bring them back and there's quite a lot of detail early in this film about them being taught traditional domestic craft um not just handicraft but cooking and dressmaking their house as a wife factory yeah it's real it's exactly what it is and Mm. you know really i mean some of my favorite scenes in the film are in this sequence what i love and again without giving too much away is how lale the hero of the film in particular uses this craft quite explicitly as a method of her own free like liberty you know she uses it as, as as something to gain autonomy she uses the tools of her own oppression to escape oppression. Mm. I, I think it's a remarkable film. I think it's deeply intelligent, deeply, deeply emotional. I'm not a that big, last half I'm hour, not a big just, crier in film, and yeah. this was, I was wrecked, like it absolutely really, wrecked. And it was so gripping, yeah. Just beautiful. And look, Warren Ellis, I think, deserves a shout-out. Mm. I think he won uh, a number of awards for the soundtrack for this film. Uh, sure. Um, yeah, like it's it's really. <laughs> if he didn't, he should have. He, should. he wins it, the he wins the Plato Cave Award for being <laughs> awesome. He incorporates a lot of Turkish music and Turkish motifs in his soundtrack too, which is lovely. It's just beautiful, just beautiful. I um, <laughs> when I finished watching this, I was so outraged that it hadn't that it didn't didn't win the Oscar. I was running around my house just ranting like, how could this film not win the Oscar for best film? What what garbage <laughs> won it over? And I looked it up, and it was Son of Saul, and it was like, oh, okay, okay, well, fair enough, Son of Saul. Okay, maybe maybe the best film you know ever made you know like okay pretty amazing year for oscars actually for for foreign language film or you know the better title is films in languages other than english but um yeah this was stunningly beautiful and um i think it's essential i think i mean it's certainly one of my films of the year and i feel extraordinarily lucky to see this and the fits in two weeks yeah in the same fortnight it's like thank you thank you film gods for not 
pushing garbage down my throat. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... there's a, and there is a beautiful subtlety in this as well. I mean, it's a very emotional film, but it, it, it's very clever about what it reveals. Like, that there is a sequence where they're celebrating and a man is firing a gun in the air, and that just takes on enormous menace in another scene. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it, but there's, there's another scene where the stakes are very, very high and, and a, a woman notices another male character just standing there with a gun tucked in his belt. And it, it's a signal that if this goes the wrong way, there could be something really devastating that will happen. The film uses binaries, I think, formally in a really mm. interesting way. So you know, things like just dark and light, day and night, these things are used very, you know, out and in. The, these these concepts are very simple, but they use very powerfully. But what I love and I think is is it's just so, so very thoughtful in this film... Um, is that it doesn't do that with gender. There's a really important male character um, that Lale makes friends with called Yasin, who's a young man who drives a car, who's very much an ally. This isn't a film about men versus women, and I think that would have actually really destroyed this film if it was. Agreed. Tonight on Plato's Cave, we've been talking about Independence Day Resurgence is on wide release through 20th Century Fox. Everybody Wants Some is on limited release through Roadshow Films and Mustang is on limited release through Madman Entertainment. You've been listening to myself, Thomas Cordwell, along with Josh Nelson and Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Josh, you're going to take off for a little bit? Yes, yeah, so I'm going to steal a, uh, a leaf out of the Oliver Playbook and say cheerio, but not goodbye yet. Is it? <laughs> pause, dramatic pause. Um, I was going to say I'm about to go on a journey, but journey is a word that's been monopolised by reality TV, unfortunately. So let's say adventure. So for the time being, I'm saying cheerio to my triple R family, but I'll be back at some stage. Yeah, watch, we'll, watch this space. Well, we're seeing you in the not-too-distant future, so the rest of you, you're going to be stuck with Alex and I for a little bit. We're going to have a few guest presenters in the next few weeks once we figure out who that's going to be. <laughs> um, and Cerise will be back be, be, before you know what's happened. Josh, bon voyage, and it's good night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.